0: This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind.
1: Welcome to the Bubble Hour.
2: Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Welcome
3: to the Bubble Hour. Welcome, 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 welcome welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it, I did that, not proud but that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power, weakness head on.
0: Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Welcome to episode five. We're halfway through our 10-part retrospective on a decade of The Bubble Hour podcast. Welcome back. I'm, I'm laughing right now because I'm thinking that it has taken me months <laughs> to get this far into the project to build these episodes. And some of you will listen to all of them in a day while you're on a long drive or cleaning the floor or painting or something. And it's just funny to me, the difference between the amount of time it's taking me to get these to you versus the amount of time it will take you to consume them. And I'm thinking of, you know, making handmade pierogies or I bake something called beet rolls that take a long time to make. And uh, my family eats them very quickly. And I I always feel this strange reality reconciliation between the time put in versus the time to consume. But nevertheless, here we are. I'm dedicating this entire episode to the Boston meetup. To me, it was a pivotal moment in our relationship. I didn't know it at the time, but looking back on it now, as I'm going through these archives, I'm realizing how important this meetup was. Here's Amanda reflecting on that meetup a few years after it occurred.
2: That was incredible. Jean, Catherine, Ellie, and I had never met, so we decided to have a meetup, and we rented in Jamaica Plain, and the four of us hung out for a weekend, and since there's so many local listeners, we invited them over, and we had a bubble hour party, and it was so cool. For those of you that don't
1: know, because I didn't know, Jamaica Plain is in Boston, and I flew to Boston in February, and it was cold as... And we couldn't leave our little apartment because it was so cold. Remember, Amanda? We ran across the street three times a day to get food from Whole Foods. And then the rest of the time, we were just (laughs) indoors in our pajamas talking from 7 a.m. till 2 in the morning for about four days straight. And at the end of it, we had a potluck supper and it was so cool. So cool. And we'd been doing the show for years and hadn't met in person. Catherine and I had met because I happened to be in her hometown right before we both started the show. And it's weird to me when you say that, that it's the one and only time we met because I swear you're my cousin or my best friend or girl next
2: door. (laughs) I'm sure I've known you (laughs) in your whole life. I know. Just incredible. The bonds that we build in recovery.
0: We met in Boston because that's where Ellie and Amanda live. The bubble hour party that Amanda mentioned was very special indeed. A handful of listeners from the area joined us in the living room of our little weekend rental. We had appies and conversation and lots and lots of laughter. It was really a beautiful, special thing, and I treasure that memory. But the majority of our time was just the four of us together in this little second-story flat, and I can only hope that whoever lived downstairs was either very patient or hard of hearing. I am so happy that we took the time to record a conversation that weekend. I just want to suggest to you, do this. I mean, you don't have to have a podcast to record a conversation. If you are ever having a special get-together with friends or family or just for your own personal use even, have a guided conversation that you can hang on to and listen to later. It is an absolute gift. We recorded this little chat around the kitchen table it was all vintage furniture. It was very eclectic. And as I recall, there was also a very scary clown painting, but we just used simple recording equipment and we did our best to capture the spirit of our friendship. This is really representative of what the rest of the weekend sounded like. You can hear the fondness and comfort that we share with one another and you can hear us smiling there was so much laughter. You might wonder if this recording was actually made during the party that we had, but no, this was just the four of us. I had spent years talking with these women about our recovery, but that weekend I really got to know them differently. I learned a lot more about them. You know, that weekend I learned that cooking was very important to Amanda because her mother was a cook and her mother had died young. And so that was one way that she brought her mother's memory into her own life. And I also remember watching Catherine blow-drying her gorgeous long red hair, watching her mannerisms and just how she moved and conducted herself. And uh, I also remember she had a really terrible head cold and that she was powering through it all. I just watched in wonder at the presence of these other women. And I found it so cute that after years of hearing Ellie whispering to her kids during the podcast, you know, shh, be quiet. It was really cool to be able to hear her talking to her kids on the phone, to hear the kindness and love in their exchange versus the hushed whispers that we usually all offered our family members and dogs and whoever was interrupting our recordings. So, picture us there. Picture us in that cozy, wee little kitchen. It's a cold, cold, snowy night outside. It was February. We were wearing sweaters and cozy socks. We all had mist matched mugs of tea. There's a plate of hummus on the table. So, pull up a chair and join us. Today, we're all together. We're together for a retreat. The silence you hear around me right now is the only silence this room has experienced in the past 48 hours. (laughs) Hello,
2: Ellie. Hi. Hi, Jean. Hi, Hi, Catherine. Hi, Jean. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Amanda. Hi, (laughs) Hi, ladies.
0: We have squeaky chairs, and we have cups of tea. We're going to be talking about getting unstuck. So we broke it down using the trans-theoretical model of change. We pass through various stages as we make a big change. And this is true when it comes to recovery. So we thought we'd explore those different stages and talk about what each
4: stage looks like
0: for us. The stages of change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, contemplation, preparation, and action. I was going to say Amanda, but (laughs) Catherine's handwriting. So, <laughs> let's <do it> <laughs> so let's start with pre-contemplation. This is the stage where you're not ready. You're not thinking about anything being wrong. You are in the problem, unaware.
4: <laughs> pre-contemplation. Ellie, what did that look like for you? I think for me, pre-contemplation was a general, even vague sense that something in my life was off balance, that it wasn't Right but I was not exploring inward for the problem. I was sort of looking circumstantially around at the people in my life and situations and my job or my relationships. I would carry with me a sense of unease or imbalance or anxiety. Not only was the thinking about my drinking being at the root of the problem not in my consciousness, nor was I part of the problem. It was a great phase of deflection. If only this person would act differently, if only this job wasn't so stressful. A profound seeking stage for me, but without ever looking inward at myself. Right. To address that I'm the common denominator in any situation I put myself.
5: I couldn't understand why things kept getting worse. I you know, yes, I was married to an active alcoholic. I pinned a lot on to him. For, why am I so stuck? Why is this so hard? I'm working so hard and everything is a struggle for me. Even when I had consequences, I normalized them. I was a blackout drinker from kind of the get-go. How was I never alarmed? Shoot. I almost swore (laughs) on the
3: show.
5: Oh, crumb. (laughs) I normalized consequences, Mm -hmm. like throwing up or being hungover at work Question,
0: Catherine, is that because you thought that alcohol was the solution to fixing the things that were wrong in your
5: life? Not only that, that through line carried through 15 years of alcoholic drinking where I was like, you would drink too if you had my life. My mm-hmm. life is so hard and I deserve this and I work so hard and my marriage is so challenging. And So it's, it's more than
4: just rationalizing, it's actually defending yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. Absolutely. Like
4: it's a it's a reward. It's a it's something I deserve because it does work at first. Like it does.
2: Places. Yeah, it yeah. does help at first, and then it really doesn't. Right. Right. I surrounded myself with people who drank like me, and That's... I really didn't want to hang out with you unless you drank like I did. I'd wake up in the morning with this immense sense of dread. What did I do the night before? I would tiptoe around my husband yeah. to mm-hmm. see, like, is he mad at me? Is he happy with me? Like, I look for evidence of what I had done because I was the same as you, Catherine. I, would, I was a blackout drinker. Yeah. Not, not necessarily every night, but when I was going for it, like on the weekends or something, I mean, or oh, actually, yeah, and eventually <laughs> that,
3: that's yeah, not yeah, into
2: into the week too. <laughs> <laughs> the worst feeling in the world to me was being told what I did the night before. Oh, I hated that.
4: The other part of this that I remember in this phase also was the possessiveness about alcohol. Mm-hmm. A, I would <laughs> never go, I would <laughs> never go to an activity that didn't involve alcohol. Yeah, same I, like, here. Movies, no thanks. Go out to dinner with three friends and they order a bottle of wine and I get that little jolt of, almost like panic, like, well, who, that's for me, Where are you guys. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it, it didn't come with any
2: shame or guilt or defensiveness really as much as this is what I do. I would like almost like belittle. The people that were with me, like I'm getting another drink. I don't know about you. Like you yeah. can join in and be cool like me. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, pressure or pressure. you can be a loser, whatever. It's, it's your call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm the big fat loser,
4: like getting drunk every time. Yeah. That was part of this too. Leaving perfectly nice evenings out to go home and drink like I wanted to. Yeah. Yes. Unapologetically.
5: Well, I actually was thinking about it when we we got together the other day starting out this long weekend, unless it was going to be a rage and the four of us were assured to just be here with bottles and bottles Coke. of wine, if it were just a normal girls weekend, I would have been like, no, I can't do that. Don't these people know how busy I am? And I can't, I can't you know, take the time mm-hmm. to make this happen and mm. and then run the risk of having to, you know, share what was really going on with me. I didn't even know what was going on with me.
2: Yeah, Well, because yeah. you can't escape, right? Like, so you can't go home at the end of the night and drink like the way that you want to if you're away with... People, people. Yeah. For
4: a I hated that. Yeah, yeah. But this is also a point where I did a lot of doctor shopping. I did. I was wow. looking for a diagnosis of something. It was postpartum depression, or it was anxiety, and I would go see therapists, and I would tell them everybody, everything, but how much I drank. Mm. And if they asked me how much I drank, I would minimize it or outright lie, not because I thought I had a problem necessarily, but because it wasn't really any of their business. You know, that's not the problem. Most people structure their drinking around their life, and I would structure my life around my drinking. But it wasn't a conscious choice. It was I just made sure, no matter what situation I put myself in, I wouldn't let my kid sign herself up for a sports activity that needed a pickup at 8 o'clock unless I could find somebody else to give her a ride. And I never said to myself, because 8 o'clock is when I'm drinking, I said, that's, really that's too late for her to be out for sports. She needs to do homework. And so my
5: life came to a
4: grinding halt by five o'clock every night by design mm-hmm. because that's when I wanted to make sure that I could drink.
5: We this. hear that a, a lot from, from moms in particular, the school dances and the sports and the whatever. Mm-hmm. Things in my life that would have
4: been a joy otherwise in my sober life were an inconvenience because
5: they interfered. They
4: interfered. It wasn't something that I felt defensive or guilty about.
0: So it sounds like all of us were in a problem, unaware what the problem
4: was, projecting outward that there was a problem.
0: With the possible exception of Amanda, who was having a good old time and did not even know
2: there was a problem. No, I accepted the fact that there was a problem and I was okay with it. All right. Like, this is my normal. I'm a party girl. Deal with it. You know, this is who I am. I don't have kids. I have a good job. I have a house. You can't tell me what to do. And I would just normalize it like I'm not hurting anyone and I'm not doing anything.
5: Yeah, that was a big one. I was like, who am I hurting?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting to work every day and I'm a contributing member of society. I'm not as mad as
5: Buddy up the street. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) I conveniently married somebody who is older and more progressed in his disease than me. I could blame it all on him and say, well, I'm not that bad.
2: Right. Yeah. Right.
5: Do you ever
0: wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little Bits of Recovery Goodness brought to you by The Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by The Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit TheBubbleHour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by The Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. So maybe... Listeners find themselves in pre-contemplation at this stage, but probably if you're listening to the bubble hour, you're at the very minimum in the contemplation stage, which is where you start to acknowledge that something isn't right. And I wrote a post about these stages of change on, on Pickle. The post is called How I Knew It Was Time to Quit Drinking. And for this stage of contemplation, I wrote, I began to feel an acknowledgement and growing discomfort with the reality of my habits. I started to pay attention to the red flags. I began watching Celebrity Rehab with intense (laughs) focus while drinking. (laughs) So still in the problem, but starting to realize, oh, I got a little problem with my drinking. I didn't want to stop yet, but I definitely started to feel like,
4: oh, crap. I think I know
5: what the problem is. So This was me in front of the computer with a glass of wine <laughs> with like one eye closed going to the Alcoholics Anonymous website. They have a quiz that's like 12 questions. Have you ever vowed to stop for a week? Have you ever missed work because of your drinking? Do you have blackouts? I was carefully picking my way through these questions. Blackouts, yes. Only every once in a while, but yes do you drink in the morning? No. (laughs) Do you drink alone? No, that's only alcoholics do that. Have you ever missed work? Well, like maybe. So I carefully pick my way through these questions. And I remember thinking that however many it was, like five out of 12 were yeses. So that was like, probably okay, if not good. And I get to the bottom and they say, if you answered even one of these questions, <laughs> But that's not the funny part. <laughs> the funny part is that I went back to the same website, at least that I remember two other times, <laughs> took the exact same quiz, knowing what that tagline was at the bottom, and hoping for a different outcome. And if there's anything that describes 15 years of alcoholic drinking in my life, it's that. That I hoped for a different outcome every single time. Like maybe now it will be different than it is. I was in magical thinking for 15 years. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was
4: not only trying to find ways to sort of disqualify myself from the alcoholic or problem drinker club, I was trying to add evidence into the other column of I can't be because. Right. And I I lived in this stage, this contemplation stage for years. It progressed over those six or seven years, but for instance, when I was pregnant with my daughter, my first child, I it, it didn't drink. It wasn't some sort of moral high ground. And for whatever reason, I felt pretty good as a pregnant lady. I had this great identity. I at the pregnant lady and, and I put a big fat check in that I can't be an alcoholic Column, totally ignoring the fact that I'm building a column of lists
3: that I can't be an alcoholic. <laughs>
4: That didn't enter into my. You mean, not everybody has that. Not everybody has that list. Apparently, (laughs) but so I would have like nine hundred checks of the. Oh, maybe I'm in trouble, and then one make check, but I can't be because. And then conveniently looking for the evidence to support that. I would sort of picture in my mind what I thought of as like what a real alcoholic looked like. And it's astonishing the power of this wishful thinking that the denial structure that we build around our maladaptive behaviors. Because if if I go on a hunt for evidence to the contrary, I can always find it and conveniently ignore the things that are speaking the other way. The other piece of this is the, the moving of the line. I would say things like I only drink when my kids are asleep. So I'm not really hurting them. I'm not really, it's not really an issue. And if I ever start to do that, I'll really curb my drinking. And before I know it, I'm starting to drink at four or three in the afternoon without even thinking about that rule that I I would justify it some other way. I'm like, well, today was a particularly hard day. The lines became blurrier and blurrier. Virtually there was no line because I would conveniently move it. What were some of the I'm not an alcoholic because I yeah. can't be
0: an alcoholic because... Da, da, da. Catherine, do members' remember Smears?
5: I work really hard, and I keep getting promoted. I loved that one. hmm mm-hmm. Did yeah. you
2: have any? That was mine, and I also had examples in my life. Family members, they're an alcoholic. I might have a little problem sometimes, but that's what an alcoholic looks like. Not, they don't look like me. Right. I would go swim in the morning at 6 o'clock in the
4: morning, and I would have active thoughts as I'm doing strokes through the water, like, alcoholics totally don't do this. (laughs) I would literally have that thought in my head. (laughs) I did stuff
5: like that, yeah. I never would say to myself, I can stop at any time, because you always hear that as one of those... He has a public service uh, announcement. Like, things alcoholics the, say. Things <laughs> say. I can quit at any time, and I would be like. So you knew better than to say. So that. I wouldn't say that, but I would be like. But why would I want to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I don't want to, so. Uh, yeah. I really leave well, on my it. stigmatized vision of what an alcoholic
0: was. Yeah. Like, say things to myself. like, well, I have all my own teeth. And it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have your teeth fall out. I thought I had a friend who, we'd be drinking wine, and I'd say, oh, do I need to quit? And she'd be like, no, you're fine. If you're an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. And then I would think. Well, I can't call myself an alcoholic because that would hurt her feelings. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be calling her. Well, kind of, yeah. And she's a really good person and she does a lot. She's not
2: an alcoholic. Yeah. I can like Yeah. You know. Yeah. Next up a couple hour, codependent.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
3: <We visited. laughs>
2: One of the best validations I had was I had a little legal trouble, as some people know. And so my probation officer sent me to see addictions therapist to evaluate me to see if I had a problem. It was literally an hour of answering all those 20 questions, but way more. And you had to rate different things in your life. And I went there. First of all, I was still drinking. When I sat down to review the form with the therapist, I told her that I wasn't drinking, that I had gotten in a little trouble, and I just thought it better that I stay away for now. And we went through the questions, and she said, you know, I don't really think you're an alcoholic. I said, you know, you can probably have a couple glasses of wine. I left there and I was like, "Woo! on. I went to my probation officer. See, I don't have to go to a program. I don't have to go to AM that
5: you're going to your probation Probation officer. (laughs) Right. I have I have heard it said that if you've had legal trouble because of your drinking, chances Chances are I think that's question 10 on the Yeah. Yeah.
4: Amanda and I grew up together and we've been friends for a long time, but I think we were probably in our twenties. And Amanda's uh, father was in recovery. And Amanda actually went to her father, was like, Ellie and I don't want to be alcoholics because we never want to stop drinking. Is that a bad
2: sign? <laughs> <time? laughs> he said, Perhaps you might already have a problem.
5: <laughs> and yes. he has given you permission to talk about yes, it. Yes, exactly. we, he has given we've talked
2: about him before. Permission to talk about
5: yes. it. Yeah,
0: yeah. So we've talked about pre-contemplation where you're not aware, not ready. Contemplation, when you start to twig in that, uh uh-oh, I think it might be the alcohol. And preparation is where you start gathering information, making plans, start gearing up to make a change. We start to look at what is it going to take to solve this problem. I would say most people move into the preparation phase of change thinking, how can I solve this without quitting drinking? Right. <laughs>
3: Absolutely.
4: right. Absolutely. For me, I think it was the only place I could get into preparation. If that's going to be the only answer, I'll just stay right where I am. I, yeah. You know. I'm just fine, Jack. And I think that's why
0: a lot of people in the station start with preparation and they try to moderate. And mm-hmm. this is where a lot of us find, oh, Ooh. beep, burp. I cannot moderate. <laughs> Right, which or you the... can moderate for a day, yeah, right. Two. But you can't string a couple of dates
4: together, and so that for a lot of us is a is another confirmation that yeah, I do have. I I want to throw a quick plug in. A strange way to phrase it for the binge drinkers, though, because I know that that particular pattern of drinking comes with its own kind of symptomology, and and it can be actually very difficult. I think to mm-hmm. kind of figure out where you fit in in the spectrum of addiction when you're a binge drinker. And that, to me, in this, in this preparation phase, in this moderation phase, that's when I started to pay attention. Can you explain binge drinking? Binge phase? drinking would be you could go for days, weeks, sometimes even months without drinking, but then when you drink, you go all out. and like Or you drink, don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen, and you can drink for days on end. You or a day. Just a day. When you drink, you find yourself in situations that would not happen to you if you were, if right. you were sober. In this stage is when I started having awareness of the lack of an off switch. Right. And that meaning if I had one, I had very little control over how many more I had or what happened. You do not drink daily, but when you do drink, that off switch becomes something that's impossible.
0: What you're talking about, I think Ellie, is assessing the relationship with yeah. the alcohol yep. and whether it's a binge drinking. People can really justify that binge drinking thing. I mean, it yeah. was my cousin's wedding. Right. right,
4: right. Of
2: course, right. I went all out. Right. Yeah, it was a. Convention. You should have seen my cousin Susie.
5: She was ten times worse.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Like, I didn't go away to college. I commuted to college. Oh. That would be my excuse to go. Like when I went all out crazy, I never had those college days. I was like thirty-five. <laughs> 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 I never consciously said, oh, I might need to start thinking about stopping drinking. But all of a sudden, every book I read, there was an alcoholic character. And then on the radio would be something about drunk driving. And it was like everywhere I turned, it, it had moved from my subconscious to my conscious without me knowing it, I mm-hmm. think. I refused to consciously acknowledge that I was thinking that I might actually have a problem, except I was looking for the invisible line. I was looking for that line to say, okay, you know, the gig is up. You were looking for
4: justification that you were still on the right side. Yeah, line. yeah. I bought the book Drinking a Love Story by Caroline Knapp in um, 1997. She wrote in my journal after I read it, I, uh, these are the exact words. I said, I think I'm standing on the abyss of something dark and bottomless, That if I'm not careful, it's going to swallow a whole." And I took that book and I literally hid it in my underwear drawer, like a, like a little secret. And it was 10 years after I read that book that I eventually got sober. The fact that you hid it, it's so
0: telling. Yeah. Because I bet if you read a book on, oh, I don't know, gluten. Right. I would not
4: put that in my underwear yeah. drawer. No, I would not. <laughs> this is when I put all the things in place, like only on the weekend or only three glasses a night, or only wine and not liquor and have three glasses, but they were humongous glasses, I could make it maybe three or four weeks following my quote-unquote rule, and then I would say, well, I did it for four weeks. This is fine. I can go back. But any time I tried to moderate like this, when I did drink, I drank more.
0: Little by little during that stage, we start to inch toward willingness, right? start to think, okay, I'm starting to get a picture of what the reality is of my situation. I'm starting to get an idea of what
4: I need to do. Mm -hmm. And that willingness does start to grow in this preparation stage. I would tip into willingness for a while and then slip back again and approach that line several times. Each time I did, something a little more took root. The willingness is really the key that unlocks the door to the rest of what we're going to talk about
0: The next stage, which
4: is action,
0: today's the day I'm going to quit, Mm -hmm. 4 o'clock. No, it's not. Tomorrow might be the day, but today's definitely not going to be the day. We hear from listeners of the show, they're really frustrated by that back and forth of I'm trying to quit and I can't and I'm I ever going to get this. And Dr. John Kelly
2: was on the show and he said, for some people, it can take years. Was he average six years Before people are in like solid long-term. I mean, that might've included some sobriety, but it was like that back and forth. Yes, It doesn't have to be that way, but it certainly isn't abnormal to be that way.
0: And really what that represents, I think, is the back and forth between the preparation phase and the action phase, Mm -hmm. really getting into that action phase and initiating change. Because when we talk about getting unstuck, people get up to the preparation, willingness... And they just can't get into that action. What are some actions each of us took?
5: So my first change, i was like starting to question my thinking, is this true? So I can't go home from work and not have a glass of wine. I can't go to dinner with my partner and not have wine. Is this true? So getting over my phone, BS.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
5: And it was piled high.
4: I think pain is always a motivator, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain. The purpose of a show like this and of the sharing of these different phases is the gift of having an awareness that pushes you into action before it goes as absolutely far as it can go. And for me, that looked like forcibly sent into treatment because I ignored so much of this part of this phase. I had the awareness. I understood that I was an alcoholic. I knew I had a problem with drinking, and I was still looking for a softer, gentler way Mm -hmm. to, quote-unquote, feel better. Suggestions that were given to me over those periods of time, things like maybe you should go to a recovery meeting, or maybe you should ask for help, or those were so uncomfortable for me that I didn't want to acknowledge that advice. I didn't want to say, yeah, I'll try that. I stayed in my discomfort because it was familiar mm-hmm. to me. And I think this is really the, the bugaboo about this stage is that I, on the receiving end of people asking for help now, I, I, I see this a lot. What is it that I need to do to go into action? And I'll say, well, this is what worked for me. And I, you know, somebody might say, yeah, but mm. that's not going to work for me because or I'm not willing to do that, which is fine. But we're back to the willingness piece. I wish I had paid attention to my resistance, yeah. yeah. To the advice that I was getting. You know, I don't want to go into a meeting because somebody I know might see me. Help
0: others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spinoff podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope.
5: So maybe we were willing and maybe we even put down the drink. But I know I had a lot of resistance. For a few months, I couldn't call myself an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I had yeah. I had stopped drinking, and I would say, "Well, I don't know what you you call it, but I know I can't control my drinking." <laughs> but yeah. I, I had a hard time calling myself an alcoholic. It took me three or four months, and I had to surround myself by people who were really cool in recovery and who I really respected, and they called themselves alcoholics, and I had to get comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. But what, like Jean, what were some of your resistance? I didn't want to assume a shame
0: identity. That's the language of Brene Brown. I did not want to tarnish the perfect, I thought, image that I built for myself, the perfect track record. I didn't want this to be true. I thought I was going to ruin my marriage. You know, it didn't occur to me that I was maybe harming my marriage by being bombed every night. Maybe that wasn't making me <laughs> well, not hot?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I a baby, it's just—it's not. Especially when you get older, it's like being the drunk girl with lipstick smeared all over your face when you're like
5: forty-five is just not hot. I did not want to go to recovery meetings because I felt like I was going to be associating with a shame identity and those people, and I couldn't be like them. And I also thought, I can't share. I I can do this on my own. It was more torturous than it needed to be. Somebody said that to me recently, said, I'm not a sharer. And I said, that's because you don't share. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to be, you know, sort of cute about it. I
2: don't think I ever sat and told someone my whole, like, story, all my deep, dark secrets. I mean, that's just something, like, I needed to do to get better.
5: I had to my therapist with with the exception of I didn't tell her that I thought I was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing that was
0: different on the day I successfully quit was that I told someone and I told her the damn truth.
5: Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: I said, "This is how much I drink every day." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was the beginning of something new. I think telling someone is one of the first and mm-hmm. most important action stages you could do. And telling your other friend who's drunk with you <laughs>
4: doesn't, is about, doesn't work. So no, think about who you're telling. Yeah, and tell the truth. Even after I put the drink down and I'm forced into some sort of program or something. I was totally reluctant to come actually clean with how bad it really was. And so those two things came hand in hand for me. I can't ask for help for something I don't need help with. Yeah. But the minute the truth was out and I I choked it out and was able to say what it was, it broke me is Mm -hmm. what it did. It broke me. It got rid of that sense that I can do this on my own. Because if there's one thing we always default back to in this show, it's the power of community, the power of a shared experience. You can't be part of a shared experience if you're not putting your experience on the table. People that are in recovery are
0: overjoyed to help others get recovery. I was scared if I tried to reach out to people in recovery and they'd be like, oh, yeah, you're not bad enough to be here. You're not, you know, (laughs) you're not screwed up enough. Because I thought I was so so much better than everyone else. But I also felt that I wasn't good enough for them either. But I did not know that one of the steps for people that are in a 12-step program is helping others. They're well-equipped to do it. There's sort of a process. Yeah, it, it helps
4: our steps. recovery to help others.
0: Yeah. So it's not as though you're looked down upon. It's that you're brought in. Brought into, into the old. Right? Yeah. You, you're scared to walk in rooms. You're scared of who's going to be there. And they're, they're there, for the there for the same reason. for the same reason. Yeah. So they're more likely to say, this is where you need to be. Then, oh, my God, can you believe that
4: Ellie walked into a
2: 12-star meeting? Yeah, literally nobody was <laughs> saying that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
4: and I, I, mean, I, I am and was a hard case. I mean, I really, I, I had a lot of resistance and a lot of kicking and screaming. And she said to me, instead of looking at what you're willing to do, why don't you look at what you're not willing to do?
5: Mm-hmm. Wow. And why? Yikes.
4: And that didn't really sink in right away, but it did after a while. Try the thing that you don't want to try. Go to the uncomfortable place. And then even after my relapse, when my continued recovery relied on making changes, I couldn't couldn't just go back to doing the same thing I had always done in recovery before because clearly there were things that needed to be changed. I had to go back and say, now what part of it didn't I want to do? What part of it did I think wasn't necessary for me? I mean, I always make the uncomfortable choice, but I know that's the one that's going to lead to change.
0: If you're stuck, you're saying, well, you know, I'm doing all these things that people think I should, but it's still hard and I'm still not happy and I'm still having slips. And I think sometimes when people say that, what they want is someone to say, oh, well, then it's okay to drink, <laughs> but it's not. The- the solution then is, well, okay, we need to do something differently. Now, that doesn't mean zigzag, but what it means is let's add something. What can we add? What makes you uncomfortable to think about? Why
4: does that make you uncomfortable? Can you identify one or two places in your recovery journey where you made an uncomfortable choice and it was a game changer? Yeah. That,
5: yeah. I was good. thinking then that, that being vulnerable and sharing... Opening up to people and sharing my stories and, like, my truth and what really happened to me, what I really did. I'm learning how to live and have relationships with other human beings
3: mm-hmm.
5: in recovery because of those game changers of, like, saying, this is what's really going on inside of me. And me. How are you, Amanda?
2: My willingness was maybe, like, a 24-hour thing. Right. There was none until I got into trouble and I had an intervention. And so, you know, that can happen too. It can be that you're never ready. Thank God someone swooped in mm-hmm. and said, You need to get help. Because I was incapable of making that decision on my own. Absolutely incapable. When someone does an intervention for you, they've done the contemplation and preparation stages. Right. For you oh, and they dump that. you into action. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I thought it was making a decision to no longer have fun, literally. Okay, I'll just be like a nun. I I was going to go from fun Amanda, who sometimes got a little bit out of control, to the most boring person in the world. And so, wait, everyone in the room who thinks Amanda is still fun, raise your
3: hand.
2: (laughs) 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 My willingness may have stopped. It, It even ended if they hadn't come when they did. I was in enough pain to make a change. So my action was, I dove in. I left my brain at the door and just said, maybe you can do everything. You can build a patio. You're, you know, you're a success at work. You can do all these different things, but you do not know how to stop drinking. So you need to ask these people how. You need to ask for help. I would go to meetings and I would say, "You know, I'm really struggling with this. How do I do this? And people would tell me. Mm-hmm. You took suggestions.
4: I got a lot of suggestions, but it wasn't until I took them. <laughs>
5: <laughs> no, I asked, Wait, you're supposed to take them? I yeah. asked for a lot of help, but I didn't let people help me. I mean, it, Well, that, what would you say to somebody who said, I am taking the suggestions, I am doing what you're saying, and it's not working? I'm still miserable, or I still am dying to drink, or, or I am still drinking? There's situation that's come up a surprising
4: amount of times where there's been people who have been trying to get sober and stop drinking and they're fraying and they're talking to people and they're asking for help and they're following instructions and they have a strong desire to stop drinking but this actually happened to me in the context of a couple of recovery meetings where then somebody then said well you know this you're not drinking right and they said, well, well, wait a minute, but I'm praying, I'm doing all these things, but it, you know, I thought I just had to have a desire to stop drinking. And I said, well, this program works a lot better if you actually stop <laughs> drinking. So to answer Catherine's question, in, for me, at least invariably, I can drill down to the suggestions that have been given to me, and I, can, I have to look for the places where I made an exception or I did it sort of half-heartedly. There's always some piece of it that I have been resistant to. It's always there. Oftentimes, that revolves around an untold truth. I've taken all the suggestions. Mm-hmm. I've done everything right, but I haven't been working with all of the information. Mm-hmm. I've left that one thing out or this one thing out. And so let's get honest. Mm-hmm. Let's really get honest and look at that one thing that you've never wanted to look at or talk about that one thing. Everything hard I've had to do came from telling
0: the truth that you're related to telling
4: the truth. Yeah. that's For me, that's a self-centered fear of rejection. Yeah, I would think if I actually told the truth, I have made up my mind what your response is going to be. If I actually really get honest about that, you're not going to like me. Right. That's a codependent thing. Right. But there's also some people who have just feel very protective of that, that that sort of vulnerability is just unacceptable. And every time I think to myself, there's got to be a way I can do it without that, right. the bad is what it is that I need to address. I think we all have things that we feel terrible about in our lives that we carry around with us. And and I
0: was sharing with you guys some deep, dark, long, burdened secret about myself. Details don't matter, but it's a fact that it's something that I carried around and really hated about myself. And then everyone's
4: like, oh,
0: me too. (laughs) (laughs) Except
4: except for me. This is Ellie. I was like, well, that doesn't really happen to me. And then I'm driving in the car with Amanda later and she looks at me. She's like, actually, that has happened to you. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, get felt, honest ellie you know it was very
0: deep we talk about the power of the me too experience and you can't have a me too experience if you don't tell the truth if
2: you don't right if you don't bring it exactly
0: it to and <laughs> i know that we're forgiven for things but i can't feel it and i really felt it in that me too experience so to sum up action do something, do something different, tell someone, get on. Do something different you. again. Do something different again, add something more. Don't give up. It can just be that you're really hovering between a couple of phases and it can take a while to get there.
4: Be compassionate with yourself without letting yourself off the hook. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow. I, oh, I, I would try these things and they wouldn't work and it would back up and fuel my shame identity. It would fuel my inadequacy. This is a brave journey we're on, whether we're trying to stop drinking or make any other hard changes in our lives. I'm not good at stopping and saying, you're doing a hard thing. This is a process and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And the beauty of the Me Too and the connection is that just the, the point in time where I think I've failed or I'm the worst alcoholic ever or some, sort of, <laughs> I'm of some kind of superlative that's really <laughs> awful for myself. No, you're a human being and you're trying and we're here for you, mm-hmm. but I have to maintain that balance.
5: Yeah, it can't be like, oh, I slipped and now, well, I, I let me get a few days under my belt before I tell anybody that I'm trying to get sober right. again. Some of these stories, back. you can be compassionate and honest at the same time. And don't confuse somebody who's trying to be honest with you with somebody attacking you or shaming you, like meaning another sober yeah, person. person. Right. Like, if a sober person is trying to give you a suggestion like chances are, and they're coming from a place of really trying to help you. And they're not trying to say you're a loser and they're not trying to shame you. Yeah. The reason you're feeling shame is because you got it. You know And it's like, it's, it's kind of hitting a sore, tender spot. Mm -hmm. Which
4: is why this is virtually impossible to do on your own. Right. You know, it's virtually impossible to do this without only your own thinking as a guide. That's so true. You know, you need somebody to be able to say, I've been there and I understand, and this is what you need to do.
0: And keep your perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Keep your perspective. And other people really help us do that because if we're left on our own, we can spiral into, I'm the worst. Right. But- I told myself a story for a long time that alcoholics were losers yeah. and I couldn't be one because I didn't want to be a loser. And I can say categorically that you are not, not losers. a loser. Yes, that's right. <laughs> awesome. A lot of fun. And this has been an amazing gathering. Yeah.
5: At least now that uh, we have all been in the same room at the same time, we've, we've awesome. Had. Yeah.
0: And we're glad that our listeners got to join us for this little portion of it.
5: And it was cool that we
2: bonded instantly. Like we already had that on the phone, but it was even more comfortable. Like, yeah, It was just amazing. Like, oh, I've known you guys forever. It was just mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good
0: night. Here's why I think this meetup was so important for the Bubble Hour. To me, this was a pivotal moment that represents a larger lesson. We didn't know it as we were recording that episode, but as that year would go on, the bubble hour was a labor of love, but it was a lot of labor nonetheless. And Amanda and Catherine both held senior positions in large firms. They both received promotions later that year, so their jobs became even more demanding. Ellie was a single working mom, was really learning the importance of prioritizing her recovery, and I was also shouldering some pretty big changes in my business at that time. Being together that weekend really energized us, but the show was starting to run its course. None of us knew that that was going to happen. We knew it would happen at some point, but we didn't know when in the next episode, we're going to look at some of those major transitions that the bubble hour would go through in the following year, as we all debated the future of the podcast. But here's why this meetup was so important. We built deeper bonds and we grew the connection that previously had only existed virtually. So meeting in person deepened our loyalty and our respect and our humanness to one another. And so as that year went on, all of us started to feel the pressure of our own lives and it started to affect the show. Anytime I felt tired or irritated over the demands of the bubble hour, I wasn't tempted to make it about the other hosts. I wasn't inclined to mischaracterize any of their intentions. Now, part of that is just good recovery. This is something we learn to do in recovery, but it also happens when the people you're dealing with are very real to you. I remember watching Ellie sit by the fire And write one afternoon. Whenever I think of Ellie, I picture her sitting in that chair writing. And later I read the piece that she wrote as she sat that afternoon and I was just blown away. It was incredible. And I thought, wow, like I watched her write this. This is going to help people and change lives the way that she changed my life and strengthened my recovery with her earlier work. And I got to watch her do that. So sometimes meeting people that we idolize can be a little bit of a letdown. I was worried I might feel that way when I met Ellie, but I didn't. Ellie is just as warm and real as she presents herself in every episode. Amanda. Amanda is a force. She is stunningly beautiful, but in kind of an effortless way. And I'd seen her picture. I knew what she looked like. But being around someone is different. She's efficient and pragmatic and capable in a way that kind of puts other people at ease. Sometimes some people just walk in the room and you think, oh, everything's going to be okay. Catherine is motion and light. I feel like Catherine is a mix of opposite strengths. She's intelligent and educated. She works a, a corporate job in a huge multinational company, but she also sees ghosts and she gets messages from the spirit world and she feels things that the rest of us are completely oblivious to. So those two very different sides of her make her a fascinating person and a lot of fun to be around. Her world is really polarized right now and people are really pretty nasty to each other in person and online. And I think a lot of that has to do with isolation because it's very easy to dismiss or malign someone who doesn't really feel all that real to us, someone who we make one-dimensional, someone who maybe only exists as a profile picture or a voice or disembodied elements that we transmit over the internet. And I don't think that the four of us would have ever dissolved into some kind of feud or rival teams If not for this meetup, I don't think that at all. But I do think that we might have just grown tired and let our frustrations settle onto one another a little bit more. And resentments, we know, are those things, you know, they're very dastardly in recovery. Resentments could have crept in because they're sneaky like that. But instead, this weekend, we deepened our love and respect for one another. In the next episode, we're going to talk about some of the changes that would come the following year. And there were many. We all went our separate ways, yet... We continued to be each other's biggest cheerleaders. I have never doubted, not once doubted, the sincerity of the support that these women have offered me as I carried on in the years to come. That is the result of the time we spent together and conversations like the one you just heard. So my message to you is to call your friends. Go and see them. Spend time with them. Connect with the people that are important to you. And if you're working on a project and everyone is remote, try and meet if you can whether it's colleagues or family or neighbors, sit together, break bread, talk about other things, ask questions, pay attention, notice things about one another. Addiction, whether it's to alcohol or anything, causes us to isolate physically, emotionally, or both. Isolation can be our default or to be together but be distracted by busyness. Give other people your time, unstructured time. Call your friends, plan a gathering, plan a getaway. The ability to do that is one of the many gifts of recovery. Come back soon for episode six. We're going to talk about that major change of direction the show took, why it happened, what it was like when our show went from four hosts to one. Until then, take good care.
3: I own it, I did that, not proud, but that's me and I face and take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies to hand With your you think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine When you see oh, I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Oh yes,